This is Saving Brothers with Philip Robertson on the Saving Brothers podcast. Well, g'day, brothers. And yes, I cannot believe that this is the final podcast of 2021 and what a heck of a year it's been. An amazing year, a lot of challenges for everybody, but a great note to finish the year off. And it's going to be my absolute pleasure and privilege to catch up with Associate Professor today, Steve McFarlane. Steve, welcome to Saving Brothers. Thanks, Phil, for the invitation to come on. It's a, it's a privilege. No, I really, really appreciate it. And I, I know you personally really through uh, some work you've done with my own, with my own mother. And uh, it's, I think it's quite fortuitous how uh, people's paths cross and opportunities arise. And we're really excited to actually talk about some issues that are very dear to your heart, and they are both Alzheimer's disease and dementia. But I thought it was a great place to start, as always, is let's unpack a little bit about who Steve McFarlane is. Graduated from Monash Uni 1991, then uh, became a psychiatrist, as in, well, your studies, of course, in 2003. So why don't you tell us a bit about who you are and uh, your journey to date? Thanks, Phil. I'd be happy to. Uh, Well, as you say, I'm a psychiatrist. I'm a geriatric psychiatrist specifically, which means I I specialise in seeing people over the age of 65. Uh, I do see younger people if they do happen to have a a dementia diagnosis, but about half of what I do on any given day is in relation to dementia. It's a a strange sort of profession, really, Phil. It's the sort of thing you, you just land in. I often say I don't know anybody who went into medical school with a burning desire to be a geriatric psychiatrist. It's just not a job that's on your radar. But uh, during my broader psychiatry training, I had the opportunity to to do six months in old age psychiatry and, and fell in love with it at that point. And I've been doing it almost exclusively since uh, the early 2000s now. Uh, part of my role, I, d- I do a day a week in private practice. As you well know, I spend four days a week working with an organisation called Dementia Support Australia, which runs a a number of Commonwealth-funded dementia support programs around the country, I'm also involved in uh, clinical trials in Alzheimer's disease. I've been doing that for about 20 years and I've had recent experience uh, presenting before the Royal Commission into aged care as well. So that's a big part of what I do is, is advocating for people who are experiencing dementia and residing within aged care. That's a really great segue into the initiative that you're intimately involved with, which is the the new Commonwealth Special Dementia Care Program. Would you like to share with the audience a little bit about that? Sure. The the Special Dementia Care Programs, or SDCPs, were were first announced in 2015 by the Health Minister at the time, Susan Lay, and they were announced in recognition of the fact that there's a small number of people around Australia who have really quite severe behavioural disturbances associated with their dementia and they just can't be cared for in mainstream residential care environments. So uh, Susan Lay announced a network of 34 facilities when they're all up and running that will specialise in the care of people with very severe behavioural disturbance. They're small bed units or small uh, cottage-based units with about eight beds per facility and they'll be distributed around the country and hopefully should all be online by the end of 2023. Uh, There's currently about nine in operation around the country, so I was involved in setting those up and uh, arranging the model of care 
that, uh, that will be implemented within them. I reckon that would be very, very personally rewarding to be seeing something that's so needed and actually seeing it come to fruition in the community. Yeah, well, it's certainly rewarding to be involved in something on a national level that does have the potential to impact on on many, many lives going forward and be, ha- and be part of the Australian health landscape here on in. So, uh, yeah, there are, there are some perks to the job, Phil, and, uh, you know, getting things done is uh, is one of those perks. Absolutely. So we're going to be talking about two areas, dementia and Alzheimer's. And quite often, as I understand it with dementia, memory loss is a big issue. And, and I would like to ask you this question. Is it quite normal that as you get older, that you start to have memory loss? Well, yes, it is. Uh, and, and this is one of the difficulties I face and, and my patients face when they come to see me, because we know that it's normal for memory to get less efficient as we age. So a large part of what I do is to try and sort out what's normal for age and compare it to what's abnormal for age. And the reason our our memories get less efficient as we get older is we lose brain cells pretty much every day. Uh, From the age of 40 onwards, we're losing 10,000 brain cells a day. That's per day. So if you compound that over 40 years, you know, by the time you've had 40 years of uh, 10,000 brain cells dying per day and you hit the age of 80, it's perhaps not surprising that our brains are less efficient than they are when we're younger. But what tends to differentiate normal age-related memory loss from pathological memory loss is the sort of things that uh, that go wrong. I mean, it's quite normal as we age for there to be a delay in retrieving information that's stored. So when we're asked a question, you know, when we're in our 20s and 30s, the answer might be there on the tips of our tongues and doesn't require much searching through the memory blocks to, to bring it back to conscious awareness. Because of the loss of brain cells, it takes a while longer for normal older people to retrieve information, which is probably one of the reasons, Phil, why you don't see 80-year-olds on, on quiz shows that require you know rapid answers because it does take uh, normal older people a while longer to bring that information back. That's quite normal. The other thing that uh, is pretty much part of the course as we get older is we find it harder to multitask and, and process multiple channels of information. So if we're at a party, for example, and there might be four or five different conversations that we're part of in a group of people, it might uh, be more difficult for us as we get older to track the individual sources of those uh, pieces of information. We tend to do much better dealing one-on-one with another person as as we age. So that's quite normal. Uh, Pathological dementia-related memory loss is is quite another thing. Okay, so then I'm going to ask dementia. It's a word used quite frequently, but I think a lot of us really don't understand what actually is dementia, Steve. Okay, dementia is a a catch-all term for a group of over 100 diseases that cause progressive decline in memory and thinking. So dementia is the umbrella term. It's often used interchangeably with Alzheimer's disease as though they're one and the same thing. But really, Alzheimer's is just the commonest form of dementia. I mentioned there's over 100 uh, particular causes of it. But of those 100 causes, Alzheimer's disease probably accounts for about 70% of the total there's maybe another four or five different types of, of dementia, which when added to Alzheimer's disease, 
uh, bring us to over 96, 97% of all cases. Most of these 100 causes that I've mentioned are really extremely rare and some of them are, are genetically determined and strike people at much younger ages. But Alzheimer's is simply the commonest form of dementia. Gotcha. So why should we be worried about dementia, Steve? The main reason we should be worried about it, I think, is because we're all living longer uh, in the 21st century. Uh, Life expectancy has been going up since the early 1900s, and we're at an unprecedented time in human history where a lot of us, uh, you know, if you're born in the, the late 90s, for example, you could quite reasonably expect to live to the age of 90 nowadays. And because the single biggest risk factor for most forms of dementia is simply advanced age, if there's a lot more of us expecting to live to the age of 90, there's going to be a lot more individuals living with dementia when they do reach that age. So if we're all hoping to have long and healthy lives, uh, the time to be doing something about it perhaps is in our 40s, 50s and 60s when we can alter our risk factor profile. So thinking about dementia and being concerned about it is uh, an important part of future planning uh, for all of us. And uh, we can take take steps at this point in our lives to, to lower our risk going forward. And that's why it's important to start thinking about it now. Okay, I really think that's a great point. Are there any treatments at the moment for dementia, Steve? There are symptomatic treatments only. And, and by that, I mean we have a number of medications that can help improve memory But the way that these medications all work is that they help damaged and dying brain cells function better whilst they're still alive, but they don't actually stop the brain cells dying. They don't alter the process that's leading to cell death. So perhaps at best, uh, most people could expect six months to a couple of years benefit from the treatments that are currently available in Australia. Having said that, you know, there was some potentially exciting news out of the US earlier this year. There was a new medication approved by the FDA in the States. It's from a class of medications called monoclonal antibodies. And this particular medication called aducanumab uh, actually targets one of the proteins in the brain that causes Alzheimer's disease and leads to its removal. So that's a glimmer of hope. Uh, The drug itself was very controversial. Uh, It's being marketed at about $57,000 US per year of treatment. So it's about $75,000 Australian. It's it's, uh, hugely expensive and it's not that effective. In fact, its approval purpose was, uh, its approval process was quite controversial. So although it's a glimmer of hope, it's by no means the sign that we've got a cure for this disease yet. There's a lot of money being pumped into further research to try and find other disease-modifying treatments that will alter the course of the disease ultimately and not just cover the symptoms for a few years. But, uh, you know, those treatments are still a fair way off, I'd imagine, and it may be more realistic to expect a preventative treatment to arise in the next 10 years than it would be to expect a cure for a disease that has already caused a lot of brain cells to die by the time people first develop symptoms. Yeah, wow. I mean, uh, gosh, if that ever comes to fruition, you certainly want that one on the PBS, that's for sure. Uh, that's 75 grand Aussie. That's, wow, a lot of, that's uh, pretty prohibitive for most. Oh, and look, when you think about the costs of the PBS, there's currently about 270, 280,000 people with dementia living in Australia. 
if uh, if it were made available at that price for a quarter of a million people, it would bankrupt the PBS. So we need to find something else that's more affordable and more realistic. And, and in my view, uh, prevention is always better than cure. If we can actually stop Alzheimer's disease developing by treating the risk factors in our middle years, then you avoid the need to have to access a marginally effective and hugely expensive treatment when you've actually got the illness. So you can mathematically model these things. And if we were to be able to delay the onset of dementia across the population by as little as five years, then we'd actually have the total number of people who are living with the disease. And that's because the biggest risk factor is extreme age. So prevention is really where the money is, I think, in, in the near and medium term future for dementia. Yeah, and that very much parallels our philosophy at Saving Brothers, Steve, which we are about empowering men to reclaim the sovereignty over their health. And really what we mean by that is to we want men to actually go and get tested, go to a doctor, be proactive, and as you say, the cure, if you can mitigate it more so around actually prevention by altering your lifestyle and perhaps your habits and things that you can do. What are, That really does lead me down the path of what are the risk factors, Steve? Okay, well, there's, there's general risk factors for dementia and there's specific risk factors for Alzheimer's disease. For, for most types of dementia, the single biggest risk factor is simply advancing age, you know, to the extent that if you're lucky enough to live to the age of 90, you've probably got... Uh, at least a 40% chance of having dementia just because you've reached that age. And that's an unmodifiable risk factor. If we want to live to 90, we have to wear those numbers. Uh, a second risk factor is family history, which is really probably overblown. Uh, I get a number of people coming to see me in my private practice who say, doctor, I'm really worried because all four of my grandparents uh, died from dementia. Uh, and, you know, I'm worried about my family history. The first question I always ask is, how old did your grandparents live to? And if they all lived until their mid-90s, it's, it's probably not a function of family history that caused them to get dementia. And your own family history is probably insignificant in that context. But certainly if you've had a relative who uh, developed dementia in their 40s, 50s or early 60s, there are forms of dementia that are genetically determined and it might be worth exploring those. So they're two unmodifiable risk factors, age and family history. The ones we can do something about, though, and this is really important because they're not just risk factors for Alzheimer's disease, but they're risk factors for heart disease and for stroke as well. So if you're treating risk factors for dementia, cardiovascular disease and stroke, you're covering the top three causes of death outside of cancer just by treating a number of modifiable risk factors, which are treating blood pressure, particularly from middle age onwards. If you've got blood pressure in your 40s and 50s and you don't get it treated, that's going to impact on your risk of developing Alzheimer's in later life. The same goes for treatment of raised cholesterol levels. And blood pressure and cholesterol are two things that tend to get away from blokes in their middle ages. We don't like going to the doctors, as you know, unless we've got a leg hanging off. Uh, we don't necessarily have symptoms that suggest our blood pressure or our cholesterol is high. But going along and getting them checked and taking measures to keep them under control can seriously impact our dementia risk as we get older. 
Other modifiable risk factors are smoking. And, you know, to your audience, if there's one thing that you can do to improve your quality of life and your health risks in so many ways as you get older, it's to stop smoking. Uh, and the fourth big risk factor for Alzheimer's disease in particular would be diabetes. And, uh, you know, many of us develop diabetes, but there's a great importance attached to keeping your blood sugars under pretty tight control if you do have it in order to prevent the complications of diabetes in your later years, which can include uh, both Alzheimer's disease and another type of dementia called vascular dementia, which is related to blood vessel disease. So just to reiterate of the things that we can do, it's treating blood pressure, cholesterol, stopping smoking, and uh, making sure we don't develop diabetes, or if we do have it, keeping our blood sugars in a control under control. And the time to do that, Phil, is very much in your 40s and 50s. It'll impact on your quality of life and your dementia-related risk as you enter your 70s, 80s, and 90s. It's interesting you, you just mentioned the word vascular and the impact that... Are you talking about narrowing of the arteries? Uh, there's, a, there's a condition called vascular dementia, which probably accounts for about 20% of all cases of dementia, and it can occur as a result of multiple strokes, which are where a, a larger artery blocks off. And if you have a, a number of strokes and knock off enough brain cells, you're going to experience cognitive consequences of that. Equally, there's disease of the very small blood vessels in the brain, which means blood vessel narrowing at the very tiny blood vessel level. And when that happens, if blood struggles to get through these narrowed blood vessels, that means that you're not delivering oxygen to your brain as efficiently as you should, and brain cells can be damaged and die as a result of that sort of gradual choking off of their oxygen supply as well. So both large blood vessel disease through strokes and small blood vessel disease, but they're both caused by the same mechanism and they both have the same risk factors. What about alcohol, Steve? Because I, let's face it, with COVID, a lot of people have turned to the uh, to the cupboard and said, well, maybe I'll just have one glass and maybe that's two or three and it's perhaps once once a week and then it's twice a week and then all of a sudden you have one with dinner. What's, what's the evidence around alcohol consumption and the correlation with dementia? Okay, the evidence is confusing in some aspects, but it's crystal clear in others. Uh, the controversy is around whether moderate degrees of alcohol, particularly in the form of red wine, which has got a lot of antioxidants in it from the red wine, from the, the red grape skins. But there was a suggestion a number of years ago that drinking moderate amounts of red wine can impact in terms of lowering your dementia risk. The jury's actually still out on that point, but what is crystal clear is that drinking excess amounts of alcohol can actually impact your dementia risk. Uh, there's a, a particular entity called alcohol-related dementia, which itself is a bit controversial because, you know, dementia is a progressive cause of memory loss, and the evidence suggests that if you actually stop drinking, then the damage that you've done can halt if not somewhat reverse itself, if it's entirely due to alcohol. But uh, alcohol-related dementia, when, when you drink alcohol, it, uh, it, it inhibits at the time you're drinking it a part of the brain called the frontal lobe, which uh, is involved in uh, mental processes such as planning, organisation, judgment, 
risk assessment, social behaviour, impulse control, you know, all the things that go out of the window when you're actually intoxicated. But the effects of alcohol on a chronic basis can mirror that as well. So if you're drinking large amounts of alcohol every day, these particular brain functions can be impaired on a long-term basis and you have to stop drinking for quite a long time for even small parts of that function to, to resume. So they currently define uh, a moderate or a, or a safe level of drinking as two standard drinks per day. And to put that into some context, a bottle of red wine will often contain eight standard drinks. Most of us uh, use glasses that are considerably larger than a standard drink glass. Uh, it does seem a very small amount, but that's what the experts are telling us is currently safe and therefore recommended not to exceed. Yeah, it makes... Uh, look, I guess uh, it does certainly, to me, make a lot of sense. I'm going to touch on a topic that we are very passionate about, and you and I have spoken about it offline, and that is sleep and the and the relationship between, let's say, sleep deprivation, a lack of sleep, and dementia. Sure. Look, this, this knowledge has only come out in the last 10 years or so, but there are there are two particular proteins in the brain that are involved in Alzheimer's disease. Uh, the key protein is one called amyloid, which is a protein that we all have circulating in our system. It's, it's part of basically every animal species makeup. But certain abnormal forms of amyloid can precipitate out and form plaques in the brain, which are felt to cause Alzheimer's disease. And one of the functions of sleep, it has recently been determined, is it's the time of our uh, day where various bodily mechanisms kick in to remove amyloid that's been laid down during the day. So our, our body has a defence against these amyloid plaques depositing and its defence is implemented whilst we're asleep when these mechanisms kick in. So it just underlines the importance of getting regular and sufficient amounts of sleep because it can be protective in and of itself against your risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. And that's without considering, you know, the contributions of other sleep-related conditions such as uh, sleep apnea, which can also impact. Yeah. And when you talk about these amyloids, I'm, I'm assuming you're referring to toxins in the body that need to be removed and they would be removed when you're in a, a form of sleep. Would that be deep REM sleep, for example? I don't think they've narrowed it down to the extent where they've identified that REM sleep is the portion of sleep where amyloid is removed, but certainly uh, the sleep stages, uh, when taken in total, are important to the clearance of this abnormal protein, yes. Yeah, wow. I mean, and for us, we are extremely passionate about sleep. I mean, I myself have a sleep coach because I, I have obstructive sleep apnea, so I use a CPAP machine, and it certainly does make a huge difference in my stress levels, perhaps even my anxiety, my ability to function well and have clarity uh, in my in my day. The role, so what about if we, because as you know, a lot of us have, uh, as we're all getting older, Steve, we have elderly parents. What if we, say, notice, what are the things that we can do if we notice memory problems, say, in an old friend or relative? What should we do about it? Okay, well, the, the first thing to be mindful of uh, are the sorts of memory problems that should raise concern. And we all have memory moments, Phil, where we go into a room and we forget what we've been there for or where we lose something or mislay an object. 
you know, that's part of the normal human experience. But a change in the pattern and the extent of forgetting uh, in an elderly relative should be seen as potentially significant. And the sorts of things that go wrong, and I'll, I'll restrict my comments to Alzheimer's disease because we can't talk about all of the 100 causes, but the early signs of Alzheimer's disease, people struggle with short-term memory, which seems counterintuitive. You know, you might think that if we've been alive for 60 or 70 years, then the memories that are most likely to be lost are those that happened 70 or 80 years ago. But that's not the case. Uh, long-term memory is well-preserved in Alzheimer's disease until quite late in the illness. So it's forgetting of recently provided information that's significant for Alzheimer's. So forgetting a conversation that you had an hour ago, uh, forgetting your schedule for the day, becoming confused about times, days and dates, that loss of awareness of time having passed and uh, the time relationships that events have to one another. Uh, Short-term memory can often show itself uh, to, to family members by a tendency to ask the same question repeatedly, often within the same conversation, because the information has not been registered and it's not there to be recalled uh, within the conversation. So that frequent repeating, uh, frequent repeated phone calls from an older family member asking the same question, uh, asking for reminders about times, days and dates, that's not necessarily normal age-related memory loss. And if family no members notice a recent change in their elderly relative's memory function, that should be a prompt to get them along to their GP for at least an initial evaluation. Yeah, I, I, as you know, you've, we've known each other really through the experiences of my own mother. And I'll ring her and you're absolutely what you just touched on. And within a period of, say, three or four minutes, she's more than likely asked the same question at least three times. So that would lead me to ask a piece of advice for any of our listeners. So if you've got someone in your family or someone that's close to you that's constantly going around and around in circles, let's say like a record, would you pull them up on it and say, oh, your mum, you've already asked me that, or would you let that one go through to the keeper, Steve? What would you do? Look, largely, Phil, I think it would depend on whether their memory loss has been diagnosed or not. I mean, certainly if you've got an established dementia diagnosis, it, it's really counterproductive to be continually pulling people up because you just frustrate them. It's beyond their control anyway. And uh, a lot of people who, who have memory problems, even, even with a diagnosis, they don't necessarily uh, accept that anything's wrong. So to be constantly confronting them and challenging them with something that they don't believe is true uh, is just going to cause frustration. And there's not many truisms in dementia, but one which I can quote is that you can't win an argument with somebody with dementia. So there's, there's no point pulling them up on things unless it's a really important matter that might impact on their safety. Where I would bring it to a person's attention, though, is if there's no diagnosis but if you notice that your elderly relative or friend is constantly repeating themselves or asking the same question, then bringing that to their attention and getting them to consider whether or not that is an abnormal thing might be a bit of a useful hook to get them along to the GP to get that diagnostic process started. Because if people are just brushing these things off as normal or, oh, it's because they're old, then it's putting it down to normal age-related memory loss, which is not necessarily the case. 
And certainly the older somebody is, the more concern I would have about that recent change in memory function to use it as a hook to get them along to their GP. And to illustrate how important it is, I mean, we know from studies of people who subsequently receive a diagnosis that most people have symptoms suggestive of dementia for up to three years before they finally get a diagnosis and up to two years before they initially get along to their GP or their family take them along to their GP for an evaluation. So all that time where uh, useful things could be put in place to support the person is being lost due to this delay in getting along to seek medical help or at least a medical opinion about what's wrong. And it's really important to get that opinion too, Phil, because, you know, not all pathological memory loss in old age means dementia. There's a large number of other medical and psychiatric conditions that can cause memory loss as a symptom that are eminently treatable. And a good case in point would be depression. You know, people who are significantly depressed will experience problems with memory and thinking. And depression is a condition that's absolutely treatable in the vast majority of cases. So just because you're experiencing memory loss, it doesn't mean that you've got dementia. It could mean that you have depression or a thyroid problem or a hormone imbalance or anemia or a vitamin deficiency. And getting along to your GP is really the first step to sorting all of this out. Yeah, really great advice. And you're right. And I think that... That case in point, men, really, we are very, very much in denial and don't want to deal with these things. We're very good at sweeping things under the carpet, as you would well know, being a man yourself, Steve. And I think you're absolutely spot on. The earlier that we can get someone in, if it's up to three years before they get a diagnosis and two years in before they even decide, oh, well, maybe this time I go and do something about it, gee, a lot can actually, I'm sure have changed. So, and it's great news that when you talk about things like thyroid issues, depression that are potentially related to memory loss, that they are things that do have solutions, which which is wonderful. I'd like to take you down a little bit of a tr- uh, a rabbit hole, and that is in the area of psychiatry and its relationship for you in film. Because you told me off air that you've uh, you really had uh, some interesting times with the ABC. So could you share with the audience, Steve, what it is about psychiatry in film and what your what you did in that space? Sure. Well, from about the mid nineties, I had the opportunity to become involved in a, a program on Melbourne Radio on Three Triple R FM called Radiotherapy, which is still going. It's on on Sunday mornings, but I, I was uh, on that show for about 24 years, and they, they challenged me to come up with something I could talk about week by week. And what I chose for a couple of reasons was psychiatry and film. The first reason was very self-serving because it was a way at the time to make my video rental tax deductible. But the, the second reason was probably more uh, more important from a public health point of view, if you like. Uh, I'll take you down a rabbit hole, Phil. I mean, if you, if you haven't had involvement in such areas of life as the police or the court system or the hospital system, uh, I'd imagine that most people who haven't been involved in those areas of life would gain what they think is an understanding of, say, the court system by watching legal dramas on TV. And it's the same with, with hospital dramas. If you haven't been in hospital or spent time in the emergency department, 
we gain our impressions through mass media of what it must be like, supposedly, through watching films and television. And uh, a good example might be ER, that show from the late 90s with George Clooney. There was one particular episode where a patient came into hospital with a, a rupturing abdominal aortic aneurysm, which is a surgical emergency. It takes six to eight hours to fix with a vascular surgeon. And this particular patient got trapped in the lift with an orderly on the way up to theatre. And uh, on ER, at least, the orderly was talked through how to do the operation by a doctor on the end of the phone. The patient survived. Everything was wrapped up within an hour. And, you know, that's how we expect our health system to work. And it's quite unrealistic. So one of the reasons I wanted to do psychiatry in film is that if, if this is true of police dramas and court dramas and hospital dramas, it's also true of psychiatric illness. Those, those among us who haven't experienced psychiatric problems or who haven't seen a relative or a friend who's been struggling with psychiatric illness, we get our impressions of what various illnesses must be like from how they're portrayed on film and television series. And a good example, if you want to reflect it back to uh, the issue of dementia, is uh, if you look at some of the characters on The Simpsons, you know, Grandpa Simpson, you know, he's clearly portrayed as being uh, affected by dementia and he's just a figure of fun. So the message we learn from that is that dementia is something to be laughed at. Uh, people who have dementia are funny and, and that subtle stigma gets into society as well. So I wanted to take the opportunity to, to deconstruct various films and television series that claim to show psychiatric conditions and to try and deconstruct that for the, the listening audience as to how realistic uh, the depictions are. And, and that was largely my motivation behind doing some work with the ABC as well. Uh, in, in 2000, I took a year out of medicine to develop a television show, which I really wanted to be a realistic portrayal of how the hospital system and how doctors and how patients work as well. And I figured I could probably have more impact on people thinking about their health through doing that for a year than I could through a whole lifetime of clinical practice. So, so I got some development funding through the ABC with a, a friend of mine, and we spent a year writing eight half-hour episodes uh, aiming to deconstruct the health system. The series never ultimately got made, but I still have the uh, the completed scripts at home. So if there are any producers uh, in your in your audience listening, please get in touch with me through the website and I'd be happy to talk to you about it. Absolutely. And I think it would be a fascinating uh, journey into the realities of the complexities of uh, the of the health system. It would be actually a, a thrilling opportunity. In fact, there are people I do know that work in television and perhaps we uh, need to have that conversation off air in particular. I My own personal experiences in the medical system, and you and I, again, we've spoken about this before, is uh, my, a family member of mine had, had had ECT, that we often think of, people would used to use the term, and I know you don't particularly like this term, shock treatment, but the, but the whole idea of ECT with somebody writhing around is really not what it's like at all. There's another example, Steve. Yeah, ab absolutely. And, and, you know, shock treatment's a good example because the very term puts people off. And uh, one of the 
illustrations of the power of media to influence public perception is as soon as you mention ECT uh, to a, a relative of somebody in hospital, uh, they always tell me that they've seen One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, for example, which shows a fictionalised depiction of ECT, but people assume that it's always been like that and is still like that. Uh, Fun fact, you know, in in Victoria alone uh, in Australia, there's over 60,000 individual ECT treatments given per year. And for many conditions, it's actually life-saving. There's particular types of severe depression where just one or two treatments with ECT can, can turn the lights back on and people who weren't eating or drinking who were essentially fading away can be restored by ECT. It's a very effective treatment when used for the right conditions. And, and the way you see it in the movies, you know, it's invariably given without an anaesthetic, often as a, as a punishment by evil psychiatrists. Psychiatrists get a bad rap in movies as well, Phil. And, uh, you know, this unrestrained seizure where people are being held down by large men in white coats, you get an anaesthetic for ECT, so you're completely unconscious. You get a muscle relaxant, so you don't see unrestrained seizure activity. If you're actually watching a modern ECT treatment, it's as dramatic as seeing fingers and toes twitching like that. You know, that's the extent of the seizure that you, that you witness it's all over in 15 or 20 seconds, and then people wake up. Uh, but to, to overcome uh, with a patient and their relatives the stigma that movies and television have given ECT over the years is a great case in point. Absolutely. I remember when you and I spoke about ECT, and I, I think we must have had that conversation probably 10 years ago, Steve, that I, my analogy was it's like rebooting a computer. Look, it's, it's a useful way to think about it. It's, it's clearly incorrect. But the, the truth is, and this is one of the embarrassing truths, is many of the treatments that we have in medicine, we know that they work, but we don't know how they work. And ECT, although there's a number of theories about how it works, we don't really know, but we do know that it works. And, you know, people respond well to simple information, and the analogy you've given is great. Uh, often when, when asked how it works, you can run the analogy... You know how when the television's on the blink and the picture's fuzzy and you give the box a whack and it comes back online, well, you know, that's how it works, which is incorrect, but people can relate to it and it's a, it's a good shortcut to get a lot of complex information across. It reminds me of uh, the Fonz in Happy Days when he used to go to the jukebox, for example, and give it a whack and, hey, you know, and everything would be everything would be fine. The it's other not, quite as, not quite as stylish in psychiatry, but, uh, yeah, that's a good analogy. <laughs> I can see you riding into the sunset on the Harley. Now, the other one, Steve, that I think about is comas, when people are coming out of a coma. Uh, I had a family member that was put into an induced coma as a result of a car accident, and I remember going to the Alfred Hospital, and we were in ICU, and the, the doctors turned to me and said, now, everything that you've seen on TV, forget. Now, I never forget that, that they took that. Just forget about it. Coming out of a coma is not all of a sudden they're going to sit up and oh, oh, and wake up and everyone's there. It's a, it was a gradual process, possibly even over a couple of days, coming out of that uh, that that well, but being in being in the coma basically. Yeah, I mean, people are, uh, are usually on very heavy sedatives to keep them in a medically induced coma, and it can take 
as you say, several hours to a couple of days to wean those off. And part of the importance of that slow weaning is to see that people can actually take over the work of breathing themselves once the sedatives are reduced, because if, they, if they're struggling to breathe on their own, it's an indicator that the coma needs to be maintained. So, yeah, n- not all things are wrapped up in an hour as they are on ER, Phil. Yes, oh, I think so, and I really do hope that we could see that series, that uh, the eight half-hour episodes that you invested a year of your uh, life in, because I think really the more that we can actually educate people, I think one of the great things about the health system, health in general, is there's a great mystique about it. And the more that we can actually involve the public and educate them, I think the relationship between the public and the health the health carers, the health system would be so much more symbiotic as opposed to there's a real sort of fear of the unknown. Yeah, look, there is a mystique about the health system. And, and, you know, one of the great myths of modern medicine is that we can cure a whole lot of stuff. You know, we can't. You know, with the exception of surgical problems and probably in infectious diseases, COVID notwithstanding, we can't actually cure much in medicine. We can help a lot of the symptoms and we can manage chronic disease quite well and keep people alive for longer, but uh, we don't actually cure much. And that's where prevention comes in. And this takes us back to our original discussion around dementia. You know, if you can actually stop yourself developing a condition through doing simple lifestyle modification stuff in your 40s and 50s, that's a lot easier than trying to resurrect a dead brain cell once you've got a diagnosis of dementia. So prevention is almost always better than cure in all areas of medicine. And it's just taking responsibility for our own ongoing health rather than assuming that if we develop a condition, modern medicine will be able to cure it uh, is, is a big shift that's required in our mindset around our health, I think. Yeah, I think we're expecting surgeons and doctors and psychiatrists to have a magic wand to be able to go, yep, I'll just go in and I'll just give you the fix, so and off you go. And, and it really does absolutely come back to what we are about, again, as I said earlier, Steve, about prevention. And I remember you had said, uh, again, offline, that if you do the right things in your 40s, 50s and 60s, you potentially are going to add another five years to your life. But if you're not prepared to make those lifestyle changes and and tinker with the things that you're at least in control of, there's going to be ultimately a consequence. That's right. I mean, by doing these things in our 40s, 50s and 60s, not only will we live an extra five years, but the last five years of our life, whenever they are, will probably be of a much higher quality of life than the five years we would have had uh, if if we'd actually died five years earlier, if you know what I mean. So it's all an investment in our long-term future, even though... And this is a difficult thing for human beings to get their minds minds around. We're not great at long-term planning. We tend to live in the moment and live for now. If it feels good, do it. But we really need to invest in our long-term futures if we, if we are wanting to live to a ripe old age and to be able to enjoy that, which is probably more important than just the actual years, Phil. Yeah, absolutely. And again... In our conversation offline, you told me about a statistic, and I think this is really about where we need to educate our youth into planning for their 40s, 50s, 60s and beyond. You quoted to me a really incredible, alarming, I'd say damning statistic of 
young men between the ages of 20 and 30, and you'd like to share that one with us. I'm sure you know where I'm headed on that. Sure. That that stat related to a study that looked at the number of times people of either gender consulted a doctor in each decade of their life. And what they found was that between the ages of 20 and 30 in that decade, the average male visits their GP on one occasion. And, you know, that's terrible in itself. But uh, the reasons that they visit the GP uh, far and away were, you know, physical injuries from sport and to get a certificate to get the day off work. So, you know, this contrasts with women of a similar age who, you know, visit a GP several times per year. And what we're doing by failing to attend our GPs is we're missing out on all of those opportunities for health education and prevention, preventative opportunities for these lifestyle diseases like diabetes, smoking-related illnesses, and ultimately dementia, that we should be nipping on the bud very early in our lives. And it's probably part of the reason why, on average, men still die, you know, three or four years earlier than, than females. Yeah, and I think part of the challenge has been in our own psychology, because we all think we're bulletproof. It won't happen to me. It happens that those poor buggers, it happened to someone else. And unfortunately, that's just not the case. And I think the sooner that we can all grasp that, our own mortality, our lack of invincibility. I mean, I myself at 47, I had prostate cancer. There is zero family history in my in my family of prostate cancer. But for different reasons, I've contracted that, uh, that disease, that form of cancer at 47. And unfortunately, there's a perfect, you know, there's, that's a, that is a cancer that more and more my surgeon tells me that he's actually operating on guys, Steve, in their 30s and 40s these days. Uh, in, it's an increasing at an alarming rate. I'd love to throw the last word to you, particularly around what you would like to see brothers do for the betterment of their lifestyle and their lives for themselves and their families when it relates to, let's say, prevention around dementia, the umbrella of dementia, of which Alzheimer's fits in that family. Okay. Well, certainly around dementia. Uh, back in the 1980s, they made projections on the what they expected the future rates of dementia to be based on the prevalence of certain risk factors, including smoking, blood pressure, cholesterol, and diabetes. And that was the, the start of our predicting the the tidal wave of dementia that's going to overwhelm us. What we found 40 years later is that, all right, the wave is here, but it's not as big as they thought. And that's because since the 1980s, there's been a much greater awareness of treating cholesterol, blood pressure, diabetes, the importance of not smoking, and the reduction of those risk factors that were initially targeted towards cardiovascular disease and stroke have actually had an impact on the numbers of people who've subsequently developed dementia. So there are things that we can do. And, and, you know, if if you know you have one of these risk factors, they are entirely modifiable. They can be treated. The best way to move towards treating them or addressing them is to see your GP. If you don't know, uh, or if you don't have any of these obvious risk factors, and if you don't know what to do, then perhaps the best advice I can give the audience is to actually make that visit to your GP regardless of your age, even if you're feeling particularly healthy and don't have any problems. Because unless the doctor has a chance to examine you and perhaps run some tests, 
the things that you don't know you have might go undetected until such a point as they're no longer as easily treatable. So if you don't know any risk factors, go to your GP and get some preventative health advice. If you do have any of these risk factors, go to your GP and try and do something about fixing them. Yeah, love it. It's number three on the Keep Five Alive program, which is get to a doctor every year. And I think it's really it's important to create a baseline, a score, a starting point, because you need to measure these things. Steve, it has been an absolute pleasure catching up with you today. I appreciate your time and uh, we will follow your journey closely. I know you'll uh, have offered to contribute uh, even potentially to uh, uh, the, the, the relationship with sleep because our coaches are all lined up ready to run their podcast next year and we already had that conversation about the relationship between sleep and dementia. So that'll be a really interesting uh, opportunity uh, if you've got some time to uh, catch up with our sleep whisperer, Catherine Nixon. So I want to, again, on behalf of Saving Brothers, Steve, thank you for your time. Absolute pleasure having you on today and educating us about dementia and Alzheimer's. So thanks again, Steve. And thanks to you, Phil, for, for having me on and good luck to all the brothers out there. Absolutely. And guys, on that note, Merry Christmas. Take care of yourselves and of each other. And this is the final podcast for 2021. But 2022, we'll be coming back to you. We'll have the new wellness app for men out as well. That's lots to look forward to in the new year. Take care and bye for now. This has been a Saving Brothers podcast. Thanks for listening.